So before we jump into the episode proper, this is Alex from the future with a bit of a disclaimer. Uh, If you'll notice, the sound quality on my end of the conversation in the first two episodes is, uh, it leaves a lot to be desired, let's just say. Uh, And that's my fault. I was using the wrong microphone, basically. Um, I did not know that that's what was happening. But ignorance is no excuse. And from the very, very depths and the bottom of my heart, I am sorry. Now, going forward, what you're hearing right now is probably more along the lines of what my uh, contribution is going to sound like. Uh, There will be other issues, and there are other issues in the recording as well. Uh, But unfortunately, those are largely out of the control of the actual people making this podcast. A lot of them have to do with connection and distortion, having to do with latency and delays and um, just the vagaries of recording across uh, a distance, essentially, um, and doing so on a budget of zero for fun, just, just kicking it, chilling, having a good time talking about Twin Peaks. So, you know, it is what it is. As long as it's legible, I think we're going to have to be okay with it. That's part of life. That's part of reality. It's part of trying to become a better, more well-adjusted human being, I think, ultimately, is learning to live with imperfection, learning to understand it, to make peace with it, sometimes even to love it. So, yeah, I guess that's that. Hope you enjoy the show. Yeah, let's get officially started. Welcome to Sometimes a Horse, a Twin Peaks podcast. And uh, yeah, so this is actually technically our second uh, episode. Uh, Me and uh, Dawn were talking talking about some more general pilot-related things, but also general David Lynch-related things and thematic elements and maybe some spoilery stuff um, last week or whatever it is for the, um, the listener. Oh, I think we should probably introduce ourselves though, right? That's a thing. Maybe. I'll start. I'm Alex Samoylov and who else is with us? Oh, okay. Uh, I'm Don Sauce. Uh, you can find me at dsauce89 on Twitter. It's D-S-A-A-S. Um, and that's Don, D-A-W, and so my pronouns are she, her. And, uh, yeah, I'm excited to come back and talk about more Twin Peaks. And I am Liam, or Nem. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at SandyFugGames. Um, I, my pronouns are they and them. I am also here to talk about Twin Peaks, and I haven't seen it past the first episode. Um, so that, that I'm, 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 I'm excited. I'm excited to have somebody on the podcast who's not right. Twin Peaks obsessive oh, like Alex and I are. The wild thing is that I sort of am like a Twin Peaks oh like fan but i'm not like like all of the stuff that i love is stuff that clearly took a great deal of inspiration and love from twin peaks like one of my favorite video games is deadly premonition um so like i i have experienced a lot of the material of the show but like in a second and third hand format it has to be really interesting to come to twin peaks the pilot having played deadly premonition first just because there are so many characters in that game who are 
direct, like, I'm not going to say direct, but at least fairly specific, like, you know, carbon copies of characters from the show. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah, like, like that's kind of like a fun experience <laughs> watching the, the pilot when I very first watched the pilot. Um, was It was like a fun experience to be like, oh, now I understand why the coffee thing is such a big deal. Now I understand why everybody sells donuts. Now I understand why that one cop won't stop crying. Right, or why there's that one one lady with like in in Deadly Premonition she has a pot, right? But it's like clearly the log lady, or like they're they're taking from that a great deal. And yeah, it's, there's a ton of that. Well, I mean, Liam. So I guess I'm kind of curious. There's something else I talked about last week. Do you have a relationship at all with Lynch's work beyond this like kind of osmotic uh, introduction or influence of of Twin Peaks on other things you've consumed? I've seen um, a couple of Lynch's films. Um, okay. I've seen Blue Velvet and um, Mulholland Drive. And I am a, like I said, I'm, I'm a big fan of like things inspired by David Lynch, mm -hmm. but I, I often find his actual work um, a little too, I don't know what the word is, particularly for what I don't really like about it. Impenetrable isn't really it, but like... Mm -hmm. Um, I, I guess Lynch does this thing where like the structure of his work is often like an important part of the storytelling and like it's, it's lack of traditional structure is important to how he's telling his story. Mm -hmm. And I, I find it kind of alienating and difficult to, to like stay engaged with the media that he puts out because like he's playing so much with how I'm supposed to be kind of experiencing it. And I think that's a really normal reaction to David Lynch's work, too. I, it's funny because Alex and I both talked about last week how that was one of the things that we really like about Lynch um, mm -hmm. is that there's something about how he organizes his worlds that, that speaks to something non... Uh, God, what I'm looking for here. Non-linear uh, or non-consecutive uh, in heck, how our brains work. Um mm -hmm. But, yeah, I mean, cinema and television, you know, any of our mediums of art, they're highly developed languages that have been developed over, at least for television, decades, mm -hmm. cinema, decades. And when filmmakers or, you know, television, TV show runners start to pick apart at everything that you think you're supposed to know about how these kinds of stories work, it's, it's like trying to learn another language. And it can be really confusing and really alienating, for sure. Well, I, and the other side of it, too, though, is that, like, mm -hmm. it's hard to avoid how influential um, Lynch is, both in his film and in TV. You know, like, when Twin Peaks came out, there was really nothing quite like, you know, quite like, quite like it is. Um, it's, it is, it is still kind of, like, quite unique. But it's pretty clear that even, like, more, let's call it mundane or more linear mm -hmm. or... Um, straightforward media mm -hmm. took a look at what Twin Peaks was and said, oh, I, I didn't know that television could be that. That's cool. I'm, I'm going to do that. Yeah, I mean, one of the really kind of key innovations that Twin Peaks did, and I'm not saying that this was the first show to do this, but it was definitely one of the earliest and biggest shows to do it, was to have a very explicitly serialized narrative. Mm -hmm. 
most most storytelling mm-hmm. before the 1990s and even like well into the 90s it wasn't really i think until like buffy the vampire slayer and the upn and wb and all those kind of shows really started to push us onto network dramas even more but it was you know stories of the week episodic individual storytelling there might be some kind of overarching series arc that develops at a glacial pace but for the most part the stories were always self-contained and right david lynch just blew that completely open mm-hmm. well i mean it's also so a bit of a soap opera yes, thing too absolutely obviously that's not net like that's not when, what we think about as sort of these network television, I mean, because they were around, but soap operas had a very specific audience with a very specific kind of purpose. And this is sort of taking that formula and bringing it out into something like the mainstream, at least for the time being. Right. I mean, I think I think that I really like about David Lynch's aesthetics is, and I think this is something that I, he shares in common with Thomas Pynchon, who's one of my favorite authors, is that David Lynch is extremely interested in American culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, he doesn't he doesn't put mm-hmm. himself above it, or he doesn't look down on it. He he wants to figure out what it is that people are are, are gaining from. You know these kind of pieces of art that defined his, these mediums. So, in Twin Peaks' case, soap operas, cop shows, um, and you know, twisting and turning all that till he has something to say about the actual nature of life in America. Yeah, I feel like a thing that that Lynch, you know, Lynch is often described as kind of like people use Lynchian as shorthand for weird, right? Like mm-hmm. it's odd or like difficult to parse, but like. I was reading today about the original kind of concept behind Twin Peaks, like what what the intent of the show was and the idea that like, you know, we will start with this murder mystery, but as we go, we'll just kind of make the viewer forget about that and not really care about it. And it'll be more about the people's lives in this small town. And it'll be like weird, sure. But like at its heart, it's a story about like a small American town in the mountains and there's there's millions of those towns and those stories aren't often told yeah i think you're right that it comes it stems from like a love love's probably the wrong word an intense interest in like american culture and american society yeah yeah that's part of the reason why i was so surprised that you hadn't uh, seen twin peaks until relatively recently because you made a whole game i not, not that it's that similar, but there's a, it's called I mean, Americana. I think, it is, I think that it's fair to draw parallels between it. Americana, the, the game, is, is explicitly influenced by things that are directly influenced by David Lynch. It begins, it begins with <laughs> yeah. a murder that you then try to solve by like getting involved in a bunch of people's weird, like mystical and strange goings on. And like, I think that that's, I, I don't think I would be kind of silly to pretend like it isn't sharing some of the same dna yeah it's just it's 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 so prevalent in some ways and i hadn't uh, actually I'm, I'm actually relatively new to twin peaks as well believe it or not a couple of years ago is when i when i actually got went ahead and and watched it um and uh i was also similarly surprised uh, at how familiar it was uh, but but sorry that that's that's maybe um, jumping a little bit backwards uh, towards like influence influences and so forth. But 
uh, just like I had seen the first episode of Stranger Things uh, before I watched the, the pilot of Twin Peaks, and I was just like, this is this is just Stranger <laughs> Things, really ripping it off. Um, but, but anyways, sorry. Uh, I, I also wanted to ask uh, Liam how far you have gotten so far. Are you on the pilot still? Or I finished the pilot ahead? and I watched um, what is labeled as episode one. Um, but I didn't get any okay. anywhere past that. I did intend to keep up with y'all because I, I did want to get on here and talk to everybody about it, but I fell off a little bit. Well, I mean, I think that's totally okay. I mean, we, we're still going to talk mostly about just general things in the pilot mm -hmm. today, probably, um, and whatever comes up, as long as it's not spoilery for you. Yeah, I'm not to spoil it as it is. It's a 25-year-old year show or whatever, so I... I'm not. I'm oh ready. well, yeah. I was gonna ask you how, yeah, how spoiler averse you were. Really? I don't mind. Cool. I mean, I mean, we'll try to like not talk about like big, big things. Like, oh yeah, I don't know who killed um, Laura. I don't know who killed Laura. I've somehow avoided yeah. that spoiler my entire life. Even though, like I say, I a lot of my friends really love the show, and like it's deep in everything else that I. I maybe maybe if I think about the ending to deadly premonition i could probably figure it out but i don't know yet so i will at least yeah, yeah there's I not don't... a coral yeah there's no correlation Sorry, between deadly premonitions ending and twin peaks it's... no yeah, one turns I'd into like a giant it. demon at the end of this one <laughs> right yes very intentionally what? threw a curveball in there <laughs> i think uh, well, I mean, I haven't actually finished Deadly Premonition, so I wasn't sure, but... Yeah, the, pro the um, ending of Deadly Premonition is actually yeah. kind of hella, hella, hella problematic for trans people. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't oh, wow. Know. Not that surprising, but... Although kind of surprising, because it isn't Swery... Doesn't he try... Isn't he trying to be well, a good he, he ally? he just released a game like a couple years ago called The Missing that is explicitly queer affirmative. And he talked about like when it was came yeah. coming out. Like, he wanted to make up for some of the mistakes he made making Deadly Premonition. So his heart's in the right place. Sure. But it was... Yeah, yeah. I saw I, I saw a playthrough of that game, and it was very interesting, and it was definitely, um, you know, very, very direct about these issues. Okay, that's beside the point. Maybe um, let's let's get into let's. Well, but that's that's how this is gonna be. This is this is a fun ramble podcast. Let's get into the pilot, though. I think, especially since we we have a quorum here, we have a, um, you know our our fresh viewer and our veteran viewers to a certain extent. Again, I've I've only been on the Twin Peaks uh, obsession train like a couple of years. It's just been really intense couple of years, is what I'm gonna say. So I don't claim to be a lifetime devotee. It's just it's it's yeah. Anyways, does anyone have a topic that they want to start with? Yeah, kind kind of. I have several. Um, I mean, okay, go ahead. this is one of the things that we didn't get to talk about last week, and I wanted to talk about it this week for sure. And I just want to dive like right into it. Dale, whether or not David Lynch intended this to be true or not, Dale Cooper is extremely coded as being on the spectrum. And by the spectrum, I mean the autism oh, spectrum. Mm -hmm. Interesting. The way that Dale interacts with the people of Twin Peaks, particularly at the beginning when he's kind of first still getting his, his feet around, reminds me a lot of how I have to be anytime that I'm around some like a new group of people that I don't know. And like I think I mentioned this last week, I'm also on the, the I'm on the Asperger spectrum, the high on the end. Dale gives that whole little speech. Um, as he and Harry are walking to the morgue about, you know, he's in charge and Harry's going to have to deal with it. And Harry's like, cool, we're glad to have you here. And then Dale just immediately turns to him with a serial killer smile and asks him about Douglas first. 
<laughs> I was gonna bring that smile up actually, because um, that was one of my big topics. Is what's the deal? What's the deal with Cooper? Is what I wrote in my notes. Uh, not necessarily. I mean, I do think you're correct in terms of. Um, again, I'm also very, at least, very likely um, yeah. on the spectrum, and I do see similar. It's like if you, you know, as a high functioning person, sort yeah. of masking. Uh, there are certain tells, you know, or, or there are certain behaviors that you kind of get into that you use to, well, I use, I don't know about other people, if it's different for everyone, but I fall into in order to, I don't want to say in order to survive, quote unquote, but I think that's kind of, in order to I, fit I think in a, better yeah, I think within the dominant. Yeah, valid word to use in that context. Yeah. Yeah, and so there are certain familiar elements there, and even that element of like the glee that he has is it reminds me of a certain because there's a lot of people that are just like super endeared to Cooper and because he's so full of joie de vivre, and 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 I would argue that's not necessarily yeah. the case in the pilot as much as it is in other elements. Yeah, other I, explic I explicitly um, but, don't think it's the case in the pilot, because I think in the pilot, it's, you talk about the, you were just mentioning this, the things that we have to do to survive or to pass or to, like, not draw attention to ourselves in, in regular conversation. Mm -hmm. I know that I have a ton of verbal tics that I use. I have so many stock responses to certain things that people say to me, like, you know, cool, cool, cool. Uh, gotcha. I, I don't just, I, it's hard for me to think of them right now because my the way that my brain is wired, it has to be the right stimuli to get me to say the thing that is hard, like wired into my brain. Is like my this is my response, so people will leave me alone and not think that I'm not capable of having mm -hmm. a conversation with them as I try to avoid having a conversation with them. Uh, but it it I I, yeah. I brought up the Douglas first specifically because that to me is the heart of 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 dale just a little bit which is dale's here for this murder and he's really interested in this murder um but also dale has been overwhelmed by this sensory information and he needs a way to label it and to categorize it and to put it into his brain and that's like why one of the first things that he asks harry about is what are these trees called and he's so happy to find out the answer and i relate to that to, yeah. to that a bunch when the witcher first came out um and I was still writing mm -hmm. about video games quasi-professionally. I remember tweeting that if I had been assigned to review The Witcher for any of the sites I was writing for at the time, there definitely would have been an entire paragraph about how much that game made me wish I knew more words for trees. Oh yeah, Except great trees in that, that. game. And really good tree game. The inability to, to make it seem to others that you care more about, or that you can care more about this girl who's been murdered than your sudden passing fascination with these trees uh, as, as somebody on the spectrum like my inability to convey the proper tone and emotion sometimes in a conversation uh, is I don't know that's one of the things I really like about Twin Peaks um, is that that's what I relate to in Dale at least is this kind of like overwhelming sense of all of this god how do I say this Sorry, I'm I'm not stoned today. I I've, nope. I, I, I <laughs> out, I'm out of weed until tomorrow at right. the earliest, and so now I feel like I'm less coherent than I usually am. Oh no! Um, but well, for me, I mean, I don't know if this is if this is related to what you you were thinking, but but that's mm -hmm. that that element of 
well, sort of that it's a mm-hmm. performance to a certain extent of mm-hmm. excitement or passion. And, it's, and it comes from a real place, but it comes from this is a way that I can channel my inability to um, to parse the situation in, in the most in the traditional way. So that people will also find me endearing as yeah, opposed to alien. It's it's because I, I I keep using the word performance, but I don't want to make it seem like I think Dale's feelings aren't real at all. I think Dale's feelings are overwhelmingly earnest and sincere. Yeah. It's just he has to put on this show for others because it's the only way he knows how to interact with other people. Yeah, and I think I don't hear a lot of people discussing this element of of Cooper really. I I, I think this is the first time I'm I'm. Uh, actually hearing a discussion about it which is kind of cool i guess we've got something going on that's really it's and it's kind of spot on and it kind of partly answers because i have all kinds of mystical and plot related and uh convoluted theories about cooper because there's all sorts of interesting stuff in the lore of of the show um but that actually answers in a very concrete or at least it treats in a very concrete way my own kind of like, huh, there are perceptions of Cooper that are coming from like a lot of other fans that I personally don't find to be quite true. I mean, he is still like, I, I, I like Cooper a lot. I'm not saying that like this is, this is that I don't share that overall sort of fandom adoration of him i just read i've always read him differently than what i hear other people reading him as you know he's like this yeah he's just this like a person full of joy and passion and joie de vivre and whatever and like he in these like you know there's um not to spoil much but there there is an element there's a point in season three where he's like super coopery where he's like and it and it feels like like it's fan service almost where this is like the perception of what the fans want Cooper to be. They want him, but, but it's not really who he is. And, and I think with, with that, that element of it is just that, that reading of it is just so on point. <laughs> is what I'm trying to say. Um, yeah, it's, I, I super, I super appreciate that and agree with it. But do y'all think that he is D.B. Cooper? D.B. Cooper? <laughs> DB DB Cooper, the uh, the famous uh, mysterious oh, I, I, uh, plane jacker. I thought we some thought, people I thought everybody thought Don Draper was yeah, DB some, Cooper. I I thought it was. I think in real life that it's Tommy Wiseau, but but within within the universe of Twin Peaks, you do know you know his name is Dale Bartholomew no, Cooper, that. right? Yeah, uh, he's named after. I think Lynch named him after DB Cooper. Uh, which is just an interesting little tidbit. Obviously, that doesn't mean he is D.B. Cooper because Harry S. Truman is not literally <laughs> Harry S. Truman. Um, but that's just that, that was just a little side note. Um, sorry, anyways, it, it, are, do uh, we have any more to say about that, uh, that, that aspect of things? It seems to me that there are multiple characters in the pilot who are some sort of, like, neurodivergent or neuroatypical you've got lucy who there's i don't she's mm-hmm. there's something with lucy i don't know what how to describe it but like lucy has some sort yeah. of like verbal processing issue and that's why lucy is the way lucy is and oh gosh you I mean there's audrey's brother who's on the 
the learning disabled end of things, but still, it's a sympathetic portrayal of a character with a cognitive disability in a major television show. Um, I mean, I think that you could make a reasonable case that you could read yeah. almost everybody in the show sort of as like a consequence. And I think that if you, you could expand this to a lot of Lynch's work generally, that like the way how he writes characters, I don't want to get into like authorial intent, but there is like an element to how his characters like are written that makes it very easy to read them as neurodivergent in some way. Um, and I mean, like, even the more, like, quote-unquote, normal characters in Twin Peaks, the ones that aren't, like, doing weird stuff and, like, carrying around logs and saying weird stuff. Like, they, right, and the log lady. Right. <laughs> they have, like, a way of speaking, a sort of, like, <laughs> that sort of signals that, the, that, that, that they're, or can be read, rather, in that sense. I, and, like, it's, a, it's an interesting read on it. I think that often, like, a lot of those traits get kind of played out as just kind of weird for weird's sake or, like, mm-hmm. unusual or something. But I think that, like, I think you're on to something there. It's sort of... Well, and I, I've been reading David Lynch. I also don't want to talk a ton about authorial intent, but I've been reading uh, David Lynch's book on transcendental meditation, uh, Catching the Big Fish. Uh-huh. And he just, he talks about a lot about, in that book, mm-hmm. about how cinema allowed him to transcend the boundaries that made him feel inhibited by regular language. And that's something that, as someone who's like really loved movies all of my life, that felt very authentic to my experience. There's something about the the metaphor and abstractions that, that art allows you uh, that can let you speak a higher truth, a more meaningful truth that maybe uh, a, can understand better that if I try to explain it, it's them in some sort of dry technical term. Mm-hmm. I also, I mean, it becomes quasi-canonical later on that she does have these like supernatural connections, but at least early on, a, a reading of The Log Lady is, for me, that I'm really interested in is uh, both feminine trauma and feminine knowledge of trauma, which are, I think, themes that under, underline all of Lynch's work. Yeah, and I think a lo- The Log Lady is a really, really interesting example of that. Because um, she sort of embodies, I, I don't know, it's like the full cycle, you know, where you have maiden, mother, and crone. <laughs> I don't I know where I'm going with that. Looking at but, all of the uh, supernatural elements, in, in at least part as sort of coding for neuro, neurodivergence. Yeah, I mean, I think it could apply to a lot far. of the stuff in terms of at least the emotional states of the character, I do think. Lynch uses some of the supernatural stuff, particularly in the return, to start making like these hyper political points <laughs> um, about nuclear weapons because the return gets crazy. <laughs> but uh, the only it gets the only so that, that, that I've seen from the return is that one Shia LaBeouf scene. Um, is it you mean, uh, Michael Shia LaBeouf? They're the same guy. Yeah, no, <laughs> Michael Shia. Yeah, so oh. oh, right, right. You know, I actually, I, I did think Shia LaBeouf was in The Return because there's a there's a bass player in one of the musical performances that looked a bit like Shia LaBeouf, but I think that was David <laughs> yeah, Lynch's there's, son. There's that scene where he's there with, like, the leather. But anyways, and, yeah, like, Michael Frank. And he's, like, he just delivers this absolutely buck wild, uh-huh. like, soliloquy to, like, three or four people who are standing there going, like, mm-hmm, yep. mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's it. That's all I've seen. The, the entirety of my... Yes, um, such, a, such a theme. Uh, we've now, I think, covered literally everything mm-hmm. that I've seen out of Twin Peaks is the first episode, the other first episode, and then that one scene. Yeah. 
Yeah, Marlon Brando. Brando. Because he's supposed to look like Brando in the wild ones. Like he's literally wearing the exact same outfit. I love it. (laughs) Yeah. But he's talking like Brando from The Godfather, apparently. Sort of. I. That's a sort of weird Brando hybrid. Brando Sarah was doing an impersonation of. And, uh, I think he said that he, that's where it's from. Like, I'm, I'm pretty sure I read yeah, something well, that, like, it, he's it, intentionally doing a, a like weird Brando, like, what's the word for it? Like, collection. Although, yeah. I, that scene is the funniest thing Michael Sarah has done, in, at least since the original run of Arrested Development. But what makes that scene gold is Robert Forrester's reaction shots as... Uh, Sarah is giving this mm-hmm. never-ending monologue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you need that straight man kind of uh, aspect of. But yeah, that's it's it's one of my favorite little bits of Twin Peaks. The, there's in, in there's like a, is all it the of third it. episode of the Return, the um, fourth episode of the Return, that is mostly it's an extended comedy bit. The the fourth, yeah. The fourth, yeah, um, the fourth episode. Um, yeah, that's a, that, mean, that, that, that episode really got some real good comedy bits in general. Of yeah, how funny um, Twin Peaks is. Like, I wouldn't go so far as to say it's a comedy. The first, yep. like the the pilot has some pretty funny bits in it, and then the first episode has like one or two genuinely like laugh out loud, like hilarious moments, and then like the rest of it is it's kind of it's kind of interesting like how it how like agile the show that i've seen is a kind of being like here are the goofs and here are the not goofs here are very clearly not goofs little box labeled mm-hmm. not goofs in a way it kind of like it, it it like lulls you in so that like <laughs> when horrible things happen or when just generally other like normal things happen you kind of are like was that supposed to be funny was that like a was that a bit? Is this a bit? Is this like a joke? And and then like the show kind of goes, "I'll never tell." That's exactly that. That it, it'll not. Yeah, it'll never. There's really the tell. moment in the pilot where the um they're in the high school and you see the the kid doing his little dance, and then it's immediately undercut by that long shot. Mm-hmm. Like there's nothing changed in the camera. Just that long shot of of uh, oh god, what's the Andy and. Hawk, Hawk, thank you. Annie and Hawk is clearly walking in the background. And it goes from this kind of like weird, sublime, this silly high school kid doesn't realize the world is ending around him to, oh, yeah, the world is ending. And Lynch is great at those mood swings. Yeah, I, mean, I think that's part of that's part of what really kind of drives the drives the whole thing. It's sort of the engine of it, really, is that it creates a certain kind mm-hmm. of momentum, in my opinion. The, the the constant tonal sort of changes and dissonance, but they're going so, I think, as, as you said, it's agile. It goes so smoothly and almost so um, mm-hmm. uh, effortlessly from goof to not goof, um, from, from goof to like straight up cosmic horror or body horror or existential horror. There's a couple of different varieties yeah, of horror in there or, or tragedy. Itself. Um there's a death. I don't want to spoil it, mm-hmm. but somebody who is playing a like an actress who plays more than one person on the show <laughs> dies in the second season, and it's one of the most <laughs> upsettingly violent images I've ever seen on television. Cable, yeah, anything. It's I couldn't believe it, it aired yeah. in the '90s. Yeah, but the thing is, is it, is it it clearly made it past the censors and past the network. Uh, so it it didn't cross any 
90s network television lines formally, it worked within those constraints, and yet somehow it manages to uh, to kind of transcend them in a really upsetting, terrifying way. Um, yeah, speaking of which, uh, just, just as another fun trivia bit, do you see Bob in the pilot? When? Yeah, he shows up in the pilot. Um, it's very, very okay. quick. It's literally blink and you miss it. The moment where the you see the gloved hand mm-hmm. uh, reaching down to pick yeah. up the locket, the half of the heart locket, and then Sarah Palmer, mm-hmm. you know, sort of jolts up on the couch and screams in her very powerful mm-hmm. Grace Zabriskie scream. Uh, and the mirror Holy behind shit. her, I've, Bob's face Yeah, I've been is watching this show off and on for a decade now, and I've never noticed that. Yeah, see, that this is so the lore of this goes is that that was then uh, Bob. I don't know if uh, Liam, you you saw Bob, and and I think he shows up in episode two. He, that's the name of the weird uh, sort of the the guy with the long gray hair who mm-hmm. uh, Laura's mom and he sees was by and, accident. like a vision of, just like staring at her. Yeah, yeah, the lore goes is that that's why he was cast, was because he accidentally showed up in the mirror. Is <laughs> because he, uh, Frank Silva was, uh, was a set decorator, um, and he accidentally ended up in the shot, and then David Lynch was like, oh, That's brilliant! I'm David Lynch! You got the part! Sorry, I have to, I I have mean, to he, do it once or Lynch, twice in an episode. This is, I guess, a minor yeah. spoiler, Liam. A character is going to be introduced to the show called Maddie, um, and she is played by Cheryl Lee, who also plays Laura Palmer, uh, because what is more so boppery than, than people who look just mm-hmm. like each other? Um, and, yeah, doubles, mm-hmm. exactly. And, doubles. I mean, Lynch gave her a speaking role on the show, even though he had never intended to do it, just because of how well she played a corpse. So Lynch is extremely mercurial on the decisions that he makes on a set. It's it's like I don't I imagine working with him would be kind of stressful if you were like the, the set manager or anything like that. Oh, uh, have you have you seen some of those like behind the the scenes no. uh, videos of him freaking out? Uh, uh, this was specifically for the return, I think, and he was just upset that they didn't have enough time in a certain location because they kind of have to wrangle him because he's a quote-unquote auteur, right? And so that comes with certain uh, uh, prima donna tendencies, I guess. And and so um, I think he wanted more time to shoot a certain scene, and he was just like, "This is sick! This is this is sick! I'm never working like this before I mean, again." Uh, you, I, we can't, we can't do this thing. We can't be dreamy. I want to be dreamy. <laughs> I mean, this is fucking sick. <laughs> yeah, well, no. He, Inland Empire. He wants he to get dreamy with it. You know, like he would co- he would show up at the set with new pages for the actors each day. There was not a script when production began, which I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure some, isn't something a major filmmaker's really been doing since the uh, Federico Fellini days. That's how he used to make movies, <laughs> and. Uh, I just mm. I cannot imagine yeah. getting Laura Dern, one of the greatest actresses of, of her generation, to sign on to a film where there's literally not a script. Well, I yes. mean, they're, they're buds from what I can gather. So he was just like, you know, come do this. Uh, and she was probably just like, <laughs> okay, I'm free on Thursday I mean, or Friday. Um, I'll shoot a few scenes. Because um, he just shot it on a handheld like, camera, like, right? Um, regulars sort of like feel about him sort of not not just as an artist but as like a person is he like i'm thinking about how like quentin tarantino and samuel jackson are like best friends in real life like they hang out and watch movies together all the time 
is does does Lynch have a similar relationship like that to the people that he works with, or is he, you know, a lot more hands off? Or he, he did with Harry Dean Stanton yeah. at least. Um, rest in peace. Um, they were extremely close. Uh, I think. I mean, he's been working with Kyle McLaughlin off and on for like thirty years now. So I I don't know the specifics of what their relationship is like, but I mean it. That's that's a partnership that has outlasted like Scorsese and De Niro, or at this point Scorsese and DiCaprio. Sure. So it has to be at least quasi healthy. And I mean, with um, gosh, Laura Dern when Inland Empire came out, Lynch was like hanging out on Hollywood streets with a cow and a sign, trying to get her to win the Oscar for Best Actress that year. She what? didn't even get nominated. Have you not yeah, seen the videos I've, of David I've Lynch and the cow? On the cow. <laughs> yeah, it's a live cow. Yeah, it's a live cow. It's a, it's a live cow? Like, oh, I have to I have to go and watch this soon. Yeah. Um, oh, well, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm told I, I've heard Laura Dern and Naomi, Naomi Watts uh, visit him on, on the regular and uh, had been trying, apparently, to get him to make another movie or another uh, something uh, for after Inland Empire. Because you know he he's not uh, he makes a, he produces a lot of work, but it's uh, but he doesn't necessarily make yeah films. Oh, I mean yeah. Was, I liked Inland Empire a lot. That was, I it's my jam, um, but a lot of people don't. Um, yeah, I would never recommend it's a very Empire. Case. Your case excluded here since it was the first Lynch you saw, but I would never otherwise recommend that to be somebody's first Lynch movie. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I was I was already weird, weird uh, creature at the time. And I was just like, this feels like what I imagine taking drugs must feel like. I I was a very clean, uh, clean cut child, and still kind of pretty clean cut. Uh, so you know, I'm like, well, this is probably what that might feel I've like. Never but I have any no drugs idea. that made me feel like Inland Empire, <laughs> maybe ketamine, uh, in terms of the awfulness, <laughs> but. But yeah, Maybe. The, I mean, I, I can Inland imagine. Empire just makes me think of a mental break. Although I suppose that's how I feel about all of Lynch's films. Yeah, but that one is intense. Uh, that one's like on on the whole. I mean, it's just oh, like yeah. c- congealed mental break. I mean, that's accurate. Actually, it makes me feel. It, 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 as far as I can relate to it, it makes me feel like a weird night terror of mine. It feels like a schizophrenic going. episode or like a dissociative um, episode for sure. Um, that just doesn't doesn't end. <laughs> so that's that's Inland Empire though. This is a little bit more. I guess Twin Peaks is a little bit more narr- yes, at least for now, now. <laughs> narratively coherent. So I wanted to talk about certain specific characters that I think Cooper is obviously constantly going to be. I, for some reason, I, I made a note here. I made a lot of notes, but they're all weird. Uh, I made a note here to talk about Dr. Jacoby specifically. So I'll, I'll ask our, our um, sort of fresh peaks. Uh, it sort of like links into another thing that I was going to ask about when I was going to come on on the first episode. So I, I I had written down a couple of questions that I wanted to ask, and mm-hmm. if, if I came on, and like the first one on the top of those lists were where if you imagine seeing this show for the first time, what impression do you do you get from the the pilot as to what is coming like next, like what is gonna what is gonna happen? J- Jacoby is is an interesting character. I, I feel like, especially in the, the episode following, too, he's the one that gets the tapes, right? Yeah. Yes. Jacoby jumps out to me as, like, 
a red herring. He's put up as like this. It's mm -hmm. weird that this older dude has these like tapes and he's like kind of saying weird stuff. He's kind of hanging out and looking kind of creepy. He, he looks even for a show full of people who dress and act like eccentrically. He is very eccentric looking and like he's the first person that they put in front is like this dude probably probably yep. did it. You know, I, like I said, I've watched murder mystery stuff before. If the first person shows up, I go, they didn't do it though. They're going to like, you know, we'll see how it goes, but he probably didn't. Yeah. Twin peaks really puts both Dr. Jacoby <laughs> and Leo up right. front pretty much yeah. immediately as the, did these people kill Laura Palmer? Yep. Yeah. Leo has the whole bloody shirt thing. I think that shows up in, uh, which is like, Oh yeah, I got this bloody shirt. Um, I'm just going to give it to, uh, to my wife who I abuse. Um, horribly uh for safekeeping and to do laundry you know like yeah he's a good criminal yeah i, I would probably follow that i say that logic is sound uh in in any kind of murder mystery the first person or people you think did it probably didn't do it but he's clearly oh i think i think i remember now why i wrote down dr jacoby in my notes um and i think it had to do with his yeah, weird yeah, dedication yeah. to his Hawaii fetish. He's, he's, he's got, um, it's, because he it's takes sort of it to an extreme. Like, I feel like every character in Twin Peaks kind of has like a gimmick that they're all really dedicated to. There must have been a town meeting at one point where everyone was like, what's your what's your thing going to be? Like, what are you going to do? So they could make sure that no one like stepped on each other's <laughs> toes. It'd be really weird if there were two Hawaii people. Right, right, right. <laughs> You're not allowed to to have res a residence. It's it's part of the zoning laws, essentially, in Twin Peaks. You're not allowed to to own uh, uh, or or rent uh, res yeah. residence within Twin Peaks city limits or whatever it's called, unless you have a thing. Um, yeah, but yeah, but for me, that like this is the, this time watching the pilot, and this is just a thought that I had about Jacoby, and not just the pilot and the pilot and the first uh, the the second episode uh is that it's really kind of like sad because mm -hmm. he clearly doesn't want to be where he is and i don't know that's just a thought that i had that came to me and i um, i can never really I follow up most of my thoughts with a my deep in-depth no, discussion no, no, no. No, but one of the most kind of tense means of the pilot is when dr jacoby and uh, Dale run into each other, and Dr. Jacoby wants to go to the morgue to see Laura because he's a creep, and he, you know, is seeing this underage girl without her parents' permission, which, like, sometimes, mm -hmm. yes, teenagers do need to see doctors without their parents know because parents are fucked up. And Twin Peaks is absolutely no exception to that, but obviously Dr. Jacoby is, like, yep. kind of lusting after oh, yeah, Laura yeah. to a certain extent. Yeah, and that's kind of a, a major yep. theme of the show, is all of these older men secretly kind of using the women in the town for whatever you know gain they get from it whatever benefit they get from it and the 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 tension between dale and dr jacoby is is funny to me because you know there's the saying that sociopaths can always tell each other from a mile away and if, if dale's not on the spectrum then dale's a sociopath uh-huh uh and dr jacoby definitely is <laughs> i mean right, I, I mean one, well for me i'm one of the other I, I all the time okay. that I might be both. <laughs> but uh, how do I say this? Dale is weirdly, I mean, because he's kind of always the audience surrogate for a lot of the show because he's the out-of-towner. Dr. Jacoby becomes the red herring that he yeah. is, not just because of that scene where he's picking up the locket out of the dirt, but just because of how much Dale just instinctually dislikes him. 
or this distrusts him for sure. But I don't think he thinks that he did it. No, I don't think he thinks that he did it. Mm-hmm. But that's the sort of weird dissonance between the uh, sort of as, as the audience surrogate. Cooper works in a weird way because yeah. there is a vibration there. There's a, diff- there's a dissonance. Exactly. Because he knows more than the audience does much of the time. And also we don't mm-hmm. really, we never really know exactly what he's thinking. Um, except for maybe when he's talking to Diane. Mm-hmm. But how much can we trust yeah, that that's really it's him? It's funny that like, you brought that up too because I was going to ask if anybody you know? knew if if that was standard operating procedure for FBI agents at any point in the FBI's history, where they just leave in these like ridiculously long monologues to their stenographers to transpose for them, or is that something that I highly doubt it. I highly doubt it too. Obviously, this nice little narrative conceit so that Dale can provide exposition to the audience, but I also just think it tells you something fundamental about how Dale has to organize his mind and how he thinks about the world around the world. It's how he, he feels he has to portray how he thinks about the world around him. Yeah, agreed. To me, it sort of reminds... There, there, was, um, there was this big to-do on the internets before the apocalypse happened uh, about, about uh, how some people think verbally and some people think non-verbally or whatever. I don't know. I feel like it's all a very strange oversimplification and has some weird ableism at the center of it. But I re- but then I realized that I do not think verbally unless I imagine that I am speaking See, to someone. See, and I'm the opposite way. Particular. I'm one of those people who has serious trouble with at least internal visual conceptualizations. Like, I have to be able to see something to see it. All of my inner monologue is, is verbal. It freaked me out a little bit because I do have a verbal inner monologue but it always has an audience, an implied audience. Like, I have to imagine that I'm talking to, which makes the political element of it real upsetting because I'm always constantly talking to, like, crappy Nazis in my head trying to debate them. And, and it's like, what? Oh, I can't get away from this. Just punch them. Just move on. Don't You're debate not, Nazis. Gonna... Just punch them. Yeah. In your head or in real life or on Twitter or whatever, do not, do, don't engage with the Nazis. Uh, but, but anyways, to me, uh, Diane is, sometimes feels like it's a sort of, um, he needs that, yeah, like you said, to organize his sort of cognition um, in a particular way. Um, but that, I mean, there's a lot more to Diane, obviously, but, uh, but like for now, within, within the scope of sort of the text that we're seeing, yeah, I highly doubt that standard operating procedure. <laughs> Yeah, right. also, you Albert don't see any of the other man. FBI characters doing it, so... Yeah, I mean, Albert has two goons, uh, or two two dudes that, like, just sort of show up with him, but I think they're just supposed to be his assistants, and he does, they don't even talk, because I don't think they wanted to pay them as much for talking roles. <laughs> I mean, sorry, Albert comes up in the next episode, so you'll... Uh, Liam, you'll see, uh, you'll see what are we talking about mm-hmm. in, the, in, the, in a bit. Yeah, and Cole doesn't... Yeah, you don't... Yeah, <laughs> I doubt, yeah. Yeah, to answer that question. No. I mean, and there's a lot of discussion about how the hell he's getting those tapes to her in the 1990s in a timely fashion, such that she's able to occasionally, within the diegesis of the show, respond to, not, but, you know, like, he asks, like, order me, I think there's the point where he says, like, I would like some earplugs, and then the next episode he has earplugs. Like, how, what kind of bizarre mail system do they have over there in the FBI or what like is he like overnighting everything 
Our taxes. How much are money is he costing the bureau? Exorbitant. <laughs> I want to know. Yeah, our taxpayer dollars are going to that. What's the world coming to? I, I mean, Diane. We're just gonna. Diane is a very interesting conceit. Is without spoils, is Diane like ever concretely kind of explained in any kind of sense, or does she remain? Oh, she's Laura Dern. Okay, cool. She shows up on screen. Yeah, cool. cool she cool. shows up in the return. Yeah, in season three. Although I, I would say yes, but also. But I, I really like that kind of like disembodied voice that they talk to, and that different that like the 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 way how it enables the show to have like conversations that you kind of can't have. Really, the alternative would be that, like, you're follow, like, you get like, yeah, a voice. Like, he would have to be like, yeah, he would have to be like, and then I went to this place for these Boy. reasons. You have your character kind of like talking over and like giving a narration mm -hmm. for themselves. That changes what the feel of the show is. And I, I don't know if you would, I don't know if you would have the same relationship with the main character if they were like, like we were talking yeah. before about how a lot of the community for this show views is like friendly and like positive and happy and like a, a sort of wholesome character. I don't think if that would feel the same way if he was delivering a lot of that stuff as a sort of shadowy voice. I think that like that would be very different, less humanizing for sure. And like it humanizes him a great deal because he's just kind of he's having like a casual fun chat with someone. And it, it's neat. And it also works to like make sure that you know at least whatever the show wants you to know, like at yep. least, you know, we're saying that it's pretty obvious that he knows a lot more than he lets on, but it lets, it, it, it provides this like vehicle for delivery. Yeah. And, and it lets us know that one of my favorite sort of uh, early uses of the Diane sort of conceit is in the very beginning of episode two, uh, which is episode one after the pilot. This, this is something that concerns me deeply. As, a, as an agent of the Bureau, as a human being, uh, and whatever, right? As a citizen of, of the United States and as a human being. <laughs> what really happened between Marilyn Monroe and the Kennedys? And who really pulled the trigger on JFK? So that's, that's like very good characterization for who he is. And I think that one little bit, plus that bit just a few scenes later or a scene later where he goes, damn good coffee. That does so much work in just those first two episodes to create that perception of who cooper is for the audience and a lot of the fandom kind of runs with it although i think it's a, he's a much more complicated character than sometimes people give him credit for you you said the i forget which character you're talking about i think it was i think it was the doctor but you said the you jacoby yeah i think that it i think that you said like jacoby doesn't seem like he wants to be there yep jacoby. um i was gonna ask if any if either of you who yeah. wants to be in, like, who wants to be in, in Twin Peaks? Who wants to live there? Who's happy in Twin Peaks? Yeah, I mean, I think that is, that's like, a that's a great question. question. I think it's kind of a, one of the fundamental, really um, implied questions of the series, which is, we have these, you know, how do I say this? We have these deified, rarefied, idealistic versions of the towns that we live in and none of that remotely matches up to the realities of jobs leaving and men abusing their wives and bosses cheating on their taxes and stealing the land from everyone but i think if you were to talk to someone like norma or harry or uh 
God, uh, Ed Big Big Ed, thank you, I was trying to remember his name. Um, I don't think they're going to have a whole lot of complaints about Twin Peaks itself because it yes. just wouldn't occur to them because they don't have the frame of how mm. actually fucked it all is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because to them, yeah. that's like a fish in water, right? Norma and Big Ed specifically, um, they they exist in a kind of different plane than a lot of other plots, sort of, a lot of other characters uh, with their own plots, um, because they are, to them, the, the concept of Twin Peaks right. doesn't matter so much. That same drama would happen wherever they are, they are. But for someone like Cooper, though, I think Twin Peaks becomes a very important symbolic sort of construct in itself and i think the the to answer your question the only one i can think of right now that's 100 percent just wants to be in twin peaks is cooper the i i think no i was just gonna say the idea that the only person who wants to be in the town is cooper well yeah and i don't know if there's something else that's that seems like something that's going to get more interesting the more of the show that i watch that statement yeah, it comes up very quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think right off yeah. the bat, it comes up with the whole Douglas first thing. Well, again, there's a lot of ways of reading that. But just the way that he's kind of enthralled by, I guess, the difference between Twin Peaks and we would assume Philadelphia is where he spends most of his time. Although it's very hard to be sure, because why was he so close to the... Um, maybe he's working from the field office. Or, I'll say presumably um, he was near Twin Peaks because... Washington. He was Seattle? investigating the disappearance of the FBI agent from the return. I mean, from Firewalk with me. Yeah, I was. Oh, uh, so he was investigating uh, what's his name, Chad Desmond. Yeah, but wasn't that a fair. year prior? <laughs> well, it, we could get into that later. <laughs> that's the whole thing. That's the timeline. That, that's the whole thing. But yeah, very, very possible though. I mean, it's also possible that that investigation could have lasted uh, a longer period of time, and that he could be going back and forth between. Uh, you know, Washington and Philadelphia. But he basically, yeah, just the idea that, that to him, he's sort of the city slicker, quote-unquote, and he really has this incredibly yeah. idealized and uh, naive, in my opinion, vision of small-town America and that, that sort of, to him, is a novelty. And yeah, not to, I wouldn't say just not a novelty, but because he sees unquote, all of the uh, evil and suffering and violence through his name of the FBI, he wants to protect this, like, crystallized, idealistic version yep. of American society uh, and fails well, just absolutely miserably. Well, right, right off the bat, you can kind of tell because he probably travels a lot. He's talking about hotels, the food he had on the way. Uh, it's all very, very sort of matter-of-fact for him. You know, he wants a place that's clean, reasonably priced, etc. Right? That, you know, he he's kind of unmoored. He probably has an apartment in Philadelphia or wherever uh, that he may see every once, every couple of months, maybe. Uh, but he doesn't feel like he has home as, a, like, a concrete concept. And to him, that becomes... And that maybe ties into his weird mythological FBI status because the way that the FBI is presented in this show is definitely not the way the FBI really is. Yeah, I mean, um, it's the, F- it's it's the FBI of, this, like, of the FBI that was on the TV G-Man in the 1950s thing. and 60s. Yes, yeah. It's this idealized, and, and then therefore he is this sort of, uh, he has taken on this weird nightly pledge to protect uh, the heartland of America, you know, and, and he actually believes that sort of bullshit, so to speak, you know, it's like part of his, 
like DNA in a sense. And so, you know, this to him feels like such a quintessential expression of it. And again, yeah, without spoiling too really much, exist. I think, the, yeah, I think like that's, that that's final haunting shot of the, of the original series, the where's Annie, where's Annie, where's Annie, that's Lynch being consumed by all of the illusions that he's been forced to confront <laughs> head on during his time in the town. Then that's where we get, hmm. well, never mind. I don't want to spoil the return, but, uh, <laughs> No, well, you know, but that that it's it's yeah. it definitely it's 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 it goes to complicated places, I think, um, and uh, and that's that we can we can say we can say that with certainty, and I think that that Cooper kind of is at the crux of it, and you know, like obviously, I, again, like you said, I don't think Big Ed would mind too much. I don't think he, uh, I mean, you know, he's he's probably been there his whole life, and you know, he's he just. To him, it just is what it is, and same thing for Norma because they're pretty normal. Yeah, I'd say Ed and Norma are probably the two you know, most mundane characters speaking. on the show. I might throw in like uh, James and Donna into that mix, but yeah, but James and again, they kind of all live in different versions yeah. of the same. Like it's like different genres. You know what I mean? Like Big Ed and Norma live in a kind of soap opera, and then. Um, James and Donna are sort of mm -hmm. a weird yeah. parallel, maybe, but they live in like yeah, a teen sure. drama soap opera, and it's like very there's a very important distinction there, right? And then like Catherine and Ben and uh, uh, Josie live in like Dallas, like the dynasty or something like that, right? Dallas or Dallas, they live in another. So they're actually different like shows that they exist in, sort of. And then, of course, Cooper and, and Truman kind of exist in a police procedural, and and then it all kind of mixes together. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of those characters don't care whether they're there or not there. Well, I think James definitely yeah. sometimes just wants to get on his bike and ride, you know? <laughs> that's, just, that's just his way, um, you know? But uh, but Cooper, I think, is the only one who, who like genuinely wants to be there, like... Some characters definitely do not, and some characters uh, just mm -hmm. wouldn't care one way or the other, in a sense. He seems enraptured by it as soon as he arrives. That's, that's I think, part of, of what people sort of read into his character a lot. He's, like, all smiles and, like, fucking, like, cheery, like, looking around with a big smirk on his face. He's asking about trees, like we were talking about that earlier. Is he... Is he... Was he looking... Was he, you know, did, did Twin Peaks... You know, he he saw a rabbit. Did he see Twin Peaks and think at last, like this is what I, this is it, at last, I've been found it? Hmm. I mean, maybe maybe it's very similar again to bring it a little bit around. Maybe it's very similar to how Jacoby feels about like Hawaii, because for Cooper, Twin Peaks is the other place that promises to be different than his like. Yeah, so there's some stuff with Wyndham and a dead girlfriend, but otherwise oh. very much kind of his past before the show starts is left almost completely blank. Right, because you, it's almost like there's a line in, in, this, in the pilot where, like, towards the end where he says, mm -hmm. you know, all I need is a place that's, like, clean, reasonably priced, blah, 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 and I, I, I want a telephone, a, I don't know, a shower, a bed, and in the rare case that I get to knock off early a television set. And I can't imagine Cooper watching TV or 
like sometimes I can't really imagine him doing normal things within mm. the confines of the original run of Twin Peaks, or at least within the confines of the pilot. Possibly because I've seen the whole run of it, and you never get much more than Wyndham and uh, the background with you know right. these other FBI friends and so forth. So you don't really know what his day-to-day life is like, really. And is it like all work? Is he mostly just running around solving cases or not solving cases as the case it's may be? It's hard to say, right? It's um, hard to say. Um, I, had, I had one last thing I, I kind of wanted to just kind of talk you know, a little bit about, which oh. is the use of music in the show. And how it seems Angelo Badalamenti was like 20 years ahead of his time in like predicting uh-huh. what indie pop music would sound like today. <laughs> there is this like kind of idea of something called chill wave. Uh, I hate. I, I used to write about music professionally, and I hate all of the genre terms that have been invented in the last twenty years. But oh. <laughs> um, the that... dreamy strings right. and synth, <laughs> and just just overwhelming melancholy. Um, lots of not even just Angelo Badalamenti's music. The song, the, the Julie Cruz song that's used in the pilot, "Falling." That kind of soft, breathy, feminine vocals, and yep. it's such a strange counterpoint. Mm-hmm to the horror at the core of the show or a lot of the horror that's at the core of the show and i think this circles back a little bit to mm-hmm. what he was talking about which is just the agility of the tone of the series if something like like a like a law and order or a csi if they try to use laura's theme something like or something that even sounds remotely like laura's theme in their show it would feel horribly horribly inappropriate mm-hmm. and now i can't hear like the main twin peaks theme or laura's theme or really any of the music from the show without getting just these really deep emotional callbacks um and there's this this vulnerability and grief to the way that the show uses music that i think really invests uh invested me at least initially in the aesthetics of the show because I'm not, I'm definitely not the target audience for a cop show. I'm a communist. Like, yeah, exactly. So, um, <laughs> David Lynch seems to throw all of these really seemingly incompatible genres and sounds and looks into something. Yeah, sure. yeah. I mean, the music is a huge component, in my opinion, of the show from start to end. And, and you know, the show and the film and, you know, all three seasons. I think we, you know, probably will have the opportunity to talk about that a lot because, um, yeah, this is sort of our mm-hmm. first big example of when Julie yeah. Cruz is, is singing in the bar and it kind of lingers on that a bit. Like, totally I'm glad listening. that Lynch went the way that he did with the Roadhouse and that he gets so many great blacks there. Yeah. The Roadhouse is a super, like, progressive, chill uh, space as far as, like, the, the music they play. And also like, they, they have I just remember the thing that I was... Do y'all not think it's kind oh, of weird, ahead. even, that the show got quite as much content Excellent. as it did, considering it's relatively, like, tepid... And, like, it got cancelled? Like, three seasons in a movie is, like, a lot. They, like, most most shows don't get that. Most shows with a lot more following, even, mm-hmm. than... I would say, when, first, when Twin right. Peaks first aired, the initial season is only, like, eight episodes long. Um, it's really short. And then the second season is not... Substa- is it a regular... I, it's been a hot minute since I've watched the second season, because when I rewatch Twin Peaks now, I skip everything after Laura's murder is solved up to the finale. <laughs> 
Josie getting sucked. It's not so bad. It, 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 it has its moments. One of the worst stuff. moments in the history. But yeah, I know what you mean. Uh, the way it's implemented, for sure. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm okay with someone being trapped in a drawer pool for some reason. Um, but, but I mean, and apparently that was actually Lynch's uh, direction. Like he called them up and was like, "I need Josie to be in a drawer pool. I just had a dream." <laughs> Or something, but I, mean, but I don't know but if that like was to go back to that, like he the wasn't show directing at that point, so um, I'm sure it would have been different. Radians, up until they solved Laura's murder, at which point everybody stopped watching immediately, as David Lynch knew would happen. He told the, he told the network, if we solve Laura's murder, it's going to suck all the air out of the show. Yeah. And they solved Laura's murder, and it sucked a lot of the air out of the show. And then, you know, Firewalk With Me happened. Well, we thought we were going to get a third yeah, season, and then it never happened because... How, do, how does network TV in the 1990s follow up the series finale, the original series finale, at least? Like, there's no precedent for that kind of liminal, extremely, like, yeah. ultra, almost exclusively symbolic uh, cinematic experience. And I just feel like they realized that David Lynch is doing stuff that our audiences aren't ready for anymore. Um, he's, he's jumped off the ledge. And so, I mean, I, what I would argue is the legacy of Twin Peaks was people finding all the things that were influenced by it, like people who got into the Velvet Underground after getting into bands that were influenced by the Velvet Underground. And then 25 years later, because of the cult of personality that began to develop around Lynch on the internet, Showtime, who was desperate for content, gave him a blank check. And then the return happened, and I still don't know how that miracle of television made it onto a major American like, network. <laughs> oh, yeah. But yeah. I mean, uh, it, it, yeah, it, it's a cult. It's always, after the first season, I think it was it was a cult show, mm-hmm. really. Um, I think it was starting to flag even a little bit before they solved the murder because people were like, some people were impatient mm-hmm. because they wanted to know who the killer was and they were just like, this is bullshit. Some people didn't get into the surreal aspects of it. Right. Uh, and then, and then, of course, once they solved the murder, that was just like, right. okay, so what's the central impetus, right? right. For and I mean, they they found some really interesting places to go in season two. Like, I'm I'm not I'm not as um, I'm not as down on season two as some people are, although it has some real cringy bits. <laughs> but um, you know, I think at that point it was basically you know the cult aspect of it is really what ended up um, eventually reviving it, mm-hmm. um, and even maybe maybe allowing for Fire Walk with Me to happen. People were so mean about Fire Walk with Me that apparently there were supposed to be two other movies that he was going to make in a sort of trilogy, and it just didn't happen. Like audiences were really mean to like were upset. I'm I'm. Con- I'm curious what they were upset about with Firewalk with me, whether it was like the really horrific violence in it, like that was what they were really pissed off about, or the fact well, that it I gave them no new information. Yeah. The the thing that I think mm-hmm. that Twin Peaks struggles with, you know, as as a show, and I think that this is I mean, in part intentionally, I think that this is an element of it that like is is, is set up and and never quite got a chance to pay off, but like the, there are there are two distinct groups of people who I think watch the show, and that are that is people who watch the show because they wanted a murder mystery show, and presumably like tuned in every single week, going, "Geez, I sure mm-hmm. sure hope we get to the fucking murder thing sometime." I'm, 
Yeah, real chicks that were spending so much time not dealing with the murder. I don't really <laughs> care about the donuts. And then there are people who were like, oh, I care very much about the donuts, actually. As a matter of fact, the donuts are why I'm here. And like every piece of content for the show created yes. by the actual creators of it and the actual artists behind it are all for that second group of people. But everyone involved with funding the show and every other element of, of this, this world, like the, the money people, I think are really interested in that first group because that first group is enormous. Like that first, the people who want a murder mystery show are like, it's, it's one right. of the most popular genres on television. Right. And, and it was going up against Cheers, well, you I believe for a large portion of its run. And how do you normal show up against something yeah, that like is Cheers. brutal. Never mind this weird avant-garde, like fucking strange, like dude walks around a town and asks people about their days. Like, show right? like it's, it's <laughs> well, like some of that is that yeah there's, there's a bit of that it really is a point for sure like i think the the show often struggle trying to walk that line and i think lint i like i say I, I read this earlier when i was looking up some stuff to talk about on the sh uh, on on this podcast but like the the reality is that like lynch wanted to kind of like or the the intended kind of line for the show was to kind of like be a murder all right, now that you're here, we're not the murder is not going to be important to you soon. Like you will not care about it. And it never really got a chance to ride that out, right? Like it, the, the, they were they they had to reveal the killer early and it resolved the thing and then like my understanding is the rest of it kind of like gets weirder after that point, right? Like season 2 is considered like like there's people stuck in doorknobs or some shit, I, as I understand. Well, I mean, it gets much weirder than that, much yeah. earlier than that. That's just a particular um, uh, choice that was made that was especially Yeah, bad. Does Coop have his dream in the third episode? Yeah. Yes, the, the dream is in the next episode, so you're in for the real uh, Twin Peaks for the here. real yeah. um, The real, yeah, the real Twin Peaks begins here. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Exactly. That's actually kind of like per, uh, apropos because that's always what's kind of said in the, I guess in the core community is if you want to get someone into Twin Peaks or see if they like Twin Peaks, get them I guess up to episode three. If they're still on board, they're on board. If they're not, that's, that's when they'll fall off. I wonder if me is on.